Hi everyone, welcome to the Blue Sky podcast, two pints of lager and a spreadsheet. I'm Dave Gibson and I'm here with my co-founder John Dudgeon. Our special guest today is the very lively Deb McGargle, lawyer and entrepreneur in the fast growth venture space. On this week's episode, we'll be finding out about what it's like to be born a tech lawyer. Why it's important to appreciate the bumpy road ahead. And how the UK accelerator space has changed significantly in the last 10 years. So hi Deb, um, in our experience is something between a whirlwind and a walking legal textbook. How would you describe yourself? Something between a whirlwind and a legal textbook. Excellent. So <laughs> we'll move on from there then. How would I describe myself? I'm fair and I'm fierce and I get the job done. So what kind of jobs? Like, let's take a bit of history then. Um, so, you know, we know your work. Um, on the legal side, uh, in depth, in the tech sector, with some scaling and fairly large businesses. Um, now, where did that come from? When you were when you were in year seven at school, did you have a burning desire to do that, or did you want to be a vet and work with ponies? I oh, I was always going to be a lawyer. Always, always. I was when I was born. I was born a lawyer. I just was born a lawyer. There was never any sort of career uh, choice for me no it was never questioned and and I think I actually can see that decision um in my character trait so I think I've fallen right I think I've fallen into the the right space so so did I think I'd become a tech lawyer no because it wasn't it wasn't around at the time uh, there was no such thing got to remember when I started out on in my career there were still on typewriters it's that's a fact there were still using typewriters there was no computers I remember um, this the the, the da, a guy called Dave um in the insurance department he got the first ever computer and I, I mean I couldn't bring myself to myself to speak to him for I would say about a year and a half I was just so jealous of what he had I remember at school we used to have a, a classroom full of typewriters where people would go and learn how to type and yeah. even when I first started auditing we used to bring out a team just to type stuff up. <laughs> you just couldn't imagine that now could you? No uh, you couldn't. I, I went on a COBOL programming course a 16 week full-time course where we we wrote code on coding sheets and we were allowed one compile a day and the coding sheets were put into the typing pool for them to type in. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. So, so tech wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing when I was um, when I was at school. So, did I think I'd become a, a corporate lawyer in the tech sector? No, but I oh, I was always entrepreneurial. Always, always entrepreneurial. So, the my passion for the law and knowing I was a lawyer and this entrepreneurial flair I had even as young as sort of 17, 18, I had my first business then while I was studying. My parents couldn't afford for me to, uh, you know, they didn't have a great big bank account to be able to send me anywhere. So everything was hustle. Everything was hustle from stacking supermarket shelves to running my own business to dancing in nightclubs and going through, you know, the, the law degree at university. 
Uh, and so if you look at those character traits and you put those character traits together and you think about which sector I'm best suited in, of course it's tech. Of course, it's the startup private equity markets because you need to be able to hustle. Everything changes really quickly, so you need to be able to change shape. And uh, you need to be able to apply what is a really old-fashioned set of rules and the law that we've got today into this modern, fast-moving business without anybody doing anything wrong, anything breaking the, uh, the, the legal uh, chain, but knowing how far you can lean on it to allow the business to be innovative enough to develop what it wants to develop. So I think it, I think somebody knew somewhere that this is where I was going to be. It just wasn't obvious to me. Okay, shall we add professional juggler to the, to the description there as well? I think you could. I think you could throw that in the mix, yeah. Perfect. Okay, so leaving university, um, did you have a choice of places to go or was it just channeling at one place and, and you saw some opportunities there? So leaving university, so my uh, path course was the bar People like me didn't go to the bar. Uh, uh, only families at that time who had established long careers at the bar sent their children to the bar. And uh, I didn't have an awful lot of choices of uh, bar courses because uh, it was all done down in London where you could afford to send your child three or four times a week to dine. Uh, my mum and dad had uh, you know, money to be able to do that. Um, but we found a way for me to go and sit my bar vocational course and uh, and it's, it's it's extraordinary you know when you think back I listen to a lot of my teams now talking around diversity and the right way to conduct yourself in business settings and their their problems now the things that worry them and affect them now when you think back to how it was when I started out I mean it's just women at the bar really wasn't even the thing let alone a woman from a working class background uh, of mixed race it just didn't happen um, and uh, I can remember I, I got through to the final stages of a, an interview when I was training to be a barrister for my training contract and when I went into the interview he started talking about the, the people master started talking about my father and how well my father had done with his career and dad had done well with his career he was a you know he was an engineer he'd worked on massive bridges and this that and the other and um it was only about half an hour into the interview I realized that he thought that my father was uh, Lord Justice Jacobs which was my maiden name and not actually Dennis Jacobs who was a structural engineer but he built bridges and the minute he found out that was it my interview was over no right of recourse no no discrimination actions. It was just like, oh, you don't fit here. So, so it was very limited. I don't even know. I think between the partying, the um, uh, the partying, the social side of things, and uh, all of the the odds stacked against me, it should never have happened. But it did. It should never have happened. But I, I got in there somehow. It's obviously my charm and my. Uh, my, my, my wit that carried me through maybe well that that would obviously be the case but i guess the odd setback like that just just um increased your motivation rather than decreased it possibly possibly so a bit of stubbornness in there which i think anybody needs to to, to move on yeah. in a in a career um do you, do you have that devs is that is that one of your sort of underlying traits as well like you just want to prove pe people wrong constantly yeah all the time it's not a positive characteristic actually it's a very negative characteristic it comes from 
Uh, it doesn't matter how good I am or how leading I am or, on, on something. There's always just that voice of, even when people aren't telling you that you're not good enough, not feeling quite good enough. So you, my bar, I think, is always miles higher than anybody else's. But it's something that I put. I, I can recognise that I put this against myself and nobody else places this on me. Yeah, got you. It's cool. I think imposter syndrome is a is a human condition, though, isn't it? We all mm-hmm. we all suffer from it from time, uh, time to time. But yeah, I yeah. guess it's just di- different levels of it. I think with it within yeah. the soul, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I think um, I, I I had a bit of it when um uh, just coming on this podcast at the beginning of it, you know, and then when Deb said, "Oh, I'm fierce," I was like, "Oh my God, where, what's going to happen?" This so I'm, and now I'm just, <laughs> now, now now I'm just excited. <laughs> I did warn you both. I did say, "You sure yeah. you want to speak to me?" Because yeah. anything could happen. You could be off air in you know first five minutes or something. But that's right. And uh, yeah, Nadine will will, will <laughs> cut our license. Uh, <laughs> I, I do sure. remember the first time we met Deb, so it was in a, I don't know whether you do, but it was in a coffee shop in uh, Gallagher, and um, we met in there, and uh, we had a great sort of, well, for myself, I don't know how it was for you, but we, we sat there and, and had coffee for sort of 90 minutes, and I, I came out of it probably feeling much like probably the, the you know, the teams that you're working with these days, I was just inspired, I sort of bounced down the road back to, back to the Metro, and um, and uh, yeah, so I, I remember that it was, a, it was a nice coffee as well. So uh, yeah, big thank you for for that. That's nice to hear. That's nice yeah. to hear. Yeah, it's good. How um, so? Kind of moving into the uh, legal side of things. How how did you get involved in the tech side of things with tech businesses? When did that first happen? I had I had always had my finger on that particular pulse. So now we are going back to. Uh, 2007 so possibly around the time that Twitter was born and uh, I could just see this emerging market I followed a lot of the Silicon Valley trends I could see these startups coming and also I could see that the UK had absolutely no interest in it whatsoever because particularly as a lawyer all your law firm was bothered about was billable targets and how you're going to hit them whereas you were dealing with people who were completely skint with no sign of any money I mean the term pre-revenue hadn't been coined then it was just a state of affairs it was just I've got an idea and I'm not making any money from it and so I suppose I must have looked like a little bit of an oddball running towards these people saying we need to work with them they can't pay us but we need to work with them and in actual fact it was worse than not being able to pay us by the time, and you guys were there, so you 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 know this, by the time we cough out for the coffee and the travel and the time out of our own business, we're paying them for their yeah. pleasure to sit with <laughs> us so that they can milk our brains for nothing. Um, <laughs> so around about 2007, 2008, uh, I was uh, exiting that time. I, uh, my husband and I, we had a very successful uh, technology business in uh, satellites and um uh, the the sports sector so we had had a really successful exit there and I was thinking about what my next thing might be somebody a mutual acquaintance had said have you heard of somebody called Maddie who is also very much like you this is Maddie Rippon she uh, loves tech she likes to work with people who are skint as well and this might be a good match for the pair of you so we got together, thought she was absolutely as mad as a hatter. I can remember the first conversation I had with her on the phone. 
And I just thought, who on earth is this? Like, seriously? She was just scattering and then she just dumped me. She's like, I've got to go for my dinner now. Bye. And just <laughs> put the phone down. I thought, well. Um, and, um, but the more we talked and the more we explored, we ended up working for a regional law firm. Uh, we carved out our own startup team within that regional um, within that regional law firm. But again, we just weren't generating anything <clears throat> and they couldn't see the long term vision. And they didn't feel the passion for the founders. And this was still back in the day when being a startup was just being lazy, you know, people who just didn't want to get a real job. And so we ended up uh, moving that journey forward and, and going out on our own in the end. So that was how that was how I got into it. Cool. Um, you started working with the Ignite program in Newcastle in the very early days of that. Right, um, at the beginning. Was, yeah. yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was. That, that would have been one of the first accelerators in the UK, I suppose. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. yeah, it was a programme um, that the North East should have been very proud of. I don't think we've sung about it enough, actually. Maybe as part of that is because they were just getting the job done. I think that if it had been started in the South, there would probably be plaques all over London now dedicated to its success. But uh, such is the life of a northerner. Uh, it was um, it was a value add programme. I've seen every programme going globally. I've seen every programme going. This was a real value add, you know, cut through the cut through all the shit and all the noise. Can I swear, by the way? Yeah, well, you just have done, so let's go with it. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. let's stick with it then. No point in changing now. And um, it, 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 it drove real value. It got to the heart of the matter super quick with very early stage teams for none of this ridiculous taking of equity in massive amounts. And it gave people a real footing. But then let's think about how that journey went because... At the time Ignite was started, uh, there was no textbooks, there was no blogs, there was no material online about how to grow and scale a business. So all of this information was revolutionary information at such an early age based in Newcastle. I mean, it's extraordinary. The achievement's extraordinary. Uh, however, you know, you, you sort of look at that period of time change around about 2014, 2015, um, and when we look at that time change, then everybody put everything online. Everything almost became open source, as did all the bad actors who then made their presence uh, in the community and globally as well, of which there were many. Um, and so you started out at the right time at the crest of the wave with a fantastic service. And then everybody just dived on the back of it. And it did dilute its. It didn't dilute the team and the core focus of it, but the founders all became know-it-alls. They all knew better. They would just go online and Google and they weren't, they were hungry for information and time was against them. So to give themselves the time and luxury and apply for a great pro uh, program like Ignite, that diminished over time, as as I think has the value of all accelerator programs. Yeah, we're seeing uh, many, many different models for, for accelerators now and so many of them seem to be part-time. So I spent mm. over a number of months and, and part-time, which I can't, you know, I can see some value in that, but I can't see that you're just going to get the same out of it as that sheer intensity yeah. of living 24-7 with a, with, with, a, with a lot of other founders. Um, yeah, yeah. And some of the people there yeah, as well. I think having um, sort of um, 
uh, worked with Ignite as well. When you went into the program, you just felt the buzz and the excitement and uh, that, that was going around you. And I just think it's, I mean, it's hard to create that on a part-time sort of basis or even virtually, really. I think it was just people were living and breathing the program for, for three months of their lives. Um, which was uh, probably part of the learning um, for, yeah, for many, exactly. many of the teams as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think um, there's real uh, value in being in an environment where the uh, the energy is so high and none of you have got yourself sorted and all of you are trying to figure it out. Yeah. And, it, uh, and, uh, and you figure it out. It's almost like figured out through a funnel mechanism because you get squeezed through and squeezed through and squeezed through. And then it gives you the freedom to be able to think in a very organised and structured way. Um, and we don't have that now because, you know, people going away from the programme or coming into the programme, I'll pick up a book or I'll watch three videos on YouTube and all of a sudden be an expert. Yeah. Which is life. So true. so true. Yeah. Life moves on. Yeah, yeah it does. Kind of after that, you spent some time in London and a bit of time in the States. Yeah, yeah. So I ran the programme in... Boston for uh, uh, Techstars, uh, which was again just a, an incredible, just an incredible experience. A very different way of um, a very different way of looking at investment. So I, at the time, was running a project anyway, an independent project, which was about the tra transatlantic tech bubble. I just could not, for the life of me, understand why these people in America wouldn't give money to my UK teams with their brilliant ideas. Just extraordinary ideas and I mean just completely naive I was because I, I was going backwards and forwards to the states doing a project with Microsoft trying to un understand and involve with them I was doing a project with um, some people from China about where they were getting their investment monies from and <clears throat> banging the drum not only actually of the UK but in particular the northeast of England like come and see what we've got this is extraordinary and <clears throat> And then it then I was either informed or it dawned on me that you know angel investment, particularly at early stage angels, they just don't work like that in the US. Angels in the US are investing because they love the founders. They're probably being founders themselves. They want to be close to their businesses. They want to help them. Um, and uh, angels in the UK want a tax break, and that's that's just how life is here. And and so uh, so you could see that the model wouldn't work. In fact, if I'd come to that consideration significantly earlier I don't think the opportunities would have come off for me in the way they did because I wouldn't have built such an extensive network so it was good that I was like slightly thick about the whole thing and kept going out trying to solve this problem uh, and didn't get to the answer as quickly as I should have done but I spent I had great time over in Boston worked with some incredible teams many whom now have exited significantly um, which I'm just I'm delighted for all of the founders. One of the teams is still one of my project companies who I'm working with, and uh, uh, I'm just interesting to. It's really important to, particularly in our sector, private equity, to look at the um, the behaviours of how people invest, why they invest, and then look at the shift patterns over time. So the historical investment, what people, you know, the, this impact of uh, of cultural changes across the whole of the investment journey. We can't just do cookie cutter what we were doing back in 2007, 2008, 2009 when we started out in this particular sector. It's completely changed. Documents have changed. The people have changed. The players have changed. We've seen shifts where it's been VC-led into being founder-led, back to being VC-led. And now, obviously, we're facing this economic downturn 
which will be the first time for many people in the startup community that they'll really understand what it is to, to drive a startup through this, you know, horrendous economic prediction that we, we see on the on the horizon. And so only by working globally, by going to different markets and seeing how it can all be done, can you give the best advice to your clients? So when I'm, to, I'm working with my uh, projects, I'm able to say to them, they're saying this, but we look historically at what happened and it's that, but we need to get ready for this over here. And so it makes for a much well-rounded experience. You can't just, you can't work in our sector and just work in a very regional centric way. Absolutely, Nana. So you mentioned project companies. You've, you've obviously got um, your fingers in quite a few pies. Do you want to um, talk us through um, if there is such a thing, maybe an average week uh, in the life of Deb McGargle? Oh, so an average week is, uh, so my Mondays um, are, so well, is, I'll cover it out in a different way. So Tuesday, Wednesdays, I work with one of my bigger clients, which is in the electrical vehicle space. They are a significant global player now um, with offices in the US uh, and all across Europe. They are just knocking it out of the park. They have uh, software and hardware elements. The founders I adore, I've been with them on the journey from day one and then they make hard decisions it's really nice now to see this grown-up approach you know they're not quite corporate but we're somewhere in between it's just wonderful it's a joy for me and a joy to see the team that they've accumulated behind them to help push them forwards for their dream so that's a tuesday wednesday they have me full time uh, on mondays i split my time between um a neobank a new neobank in the science space they're just doing some extraordinary stuff uh, around um, commercialization. So I did, uh, so this is a team I worked with before they were in cryptocurrency, which is another passion of mine. I love the crypto space. So uh, he was a successful founder who we exited from a crypto startup. He's come in with this uh, uh, new bank on a Monday and they're looking at the, this commercialization journey through uh, universities with the bank, this new neo bank running alongside. It's wild and it's wacky. And it probably shouldn't work, but you know, this founder is just a rock star and I think he'll get that done. Um, and then I have a couple of other portfolio companies that are sprinkled across the Monday afternoon and across the Thursday. Um, and, um, and then on a Friday, I do my stuff. I do whatever I want to do. I'll go to a health spa. I'll go out walking for the day. I will... I don't do housework because why should I? And um, I just... I uh, just do what I want to do yeah it's really like it's taken me a long time to get here but you know I think I've been practicing now for what 25 years 24 years 25 years but eventually I've cracked work-life balance so yeah it's uh, it takes a long while to get there to mm -hmm. be honest but if you um if if you're really strong and in control then you, it can be done it can absolutely be done so yeah do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you what you do in your downtime Bit more about Deb the I, person. Uh, oh, Deb the person. Oh, she's fantastic. Where did you hear about her? <laughs> oh, um, uh, I, uh, I have grown up children now. I can't believe I'm saying that because when we all sort of first met, I had babies, but um, my kids are all grown up now, which is uh, fantastic actually because you can go on holiday without them, and we're absolutely thrilled for that <laughs> new phase of our lives. Um, I uh, I read a lot. I zumba. I absolutely love zumbering and um, uh, uh, getting into community zumba, community fitness. So I really enjoy doing that. We're massive walkers in this house, so we go all over and uh, and we do huge walks. Go away, countless uh, weekends away, all the time. 
two and something. Um, and um, and then I have my charity as well. So I have a, a charity and that we've had for a few years and that takes up quite a bit of time in terms of fundraising and schmoozing and trying to get money out of various people to support their activities. Uh, I don't watch television. Um, I uh, refuse to watch it. I don't follow current affairs or the news. I refuse to watch them. Uh, it's just a waste of my time and my brain power, actually. Podcasts, I love a good podcast. Do you? I love a good podcast. <laughs> yeah. And that any, from anything, from anything, from yeah. um, reading about um, um, uh, Russians in previous wars through to books on founders and things on science, just everything, just think um i just want to experience every place and read every book and do all the things and watching television and the listening to the mainstream media just doesn't allow you to do that so i've shut them off so that that's that's my fun side no that's fine so so podcasts are your television and your uh, your radio gram well, you can, well you, you, you're choosing aren't you you know the, yeah. the, the i think the thing is nowadays everything uh, you know even with social media i do a little bit of twitter but i've come off everything else everything is so Everything is so polarising. And maybe this goes back to the point we were making about, you know, me always going to be a lawyer. You know, I I don't want to be pigeonholed in one group or the other. So when things are polarising on any opinion or any topic or politics, I always go to the middle. I've always, always gone to the middle. That's where I've always sat. Because then you can turn down the volume. You can listen to both sides. And then you can form your own opinion based on that. I hate... Maybe I've just been, I hate being told what to do. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the thing with me. In fact, I think it probably is the thing with me, but I, I don't want to regurgitate information that I haven't actually like checked myself. I'm really interested in finding my own opinion so I can speak to my own opinion. And I just don't feel like, um, I don't just don't feel like outside media helps with that. So I like to go and find the, the source of, the source of my truth myself. So uh, like good old fashioned research. That's an interesting Maybe. concept. That's an interesting concept. Maybe. I do agree. I think um, social media is is polarizing now. It's like if you put put an opinion on social media, it's an opportunity for everybody to tell you that you're wrong. Mm -hmm. like, but, mm, that's not quite why I said what I said. So mm -hmm. I tend to keep quieter than than maybe I should be. John John tells me I should be a bit noisier on some platforms, but. Uh, it's just an energy drain. It's just mm. an energy drain, and we have all of this wonderful energy inside of us. We all work really hard, so if we we're working hard through the week. We should be doing activities that actually top up our energy and make us really vibrant and bright, not suck it out of us even more. Otherwise, you know, that's not living at all, is it? Yeah, nope. Um, so we've got um, project companies, you've got some NED work um, and you've got a charity. You want to tell us a bit more about the charity? You can name it if you like. So it's yeah, so my charity is um, the Link Charitable Trust. It is a charity based in the south of the region and uh, we work predominantly with uh, uh, children who've had some form of distress and uh, supporting their families. I think that's that's a, a, an easiest way to, to describe it. We have supported thousands and thousands of uh, service users through, particularly throughout COVID, although the, the, the charity was up and running for a lot longer. Uh, and it's difficult, funding super tight, People are, have been really generous, but there's so many causes 
uh, to donate to. Every charity is going through the same. And it's very difficult, isn't it? How do you put your charity ahead of somebody else's? You know, I've sit with other charity owners and say, what are you facing? It's the same as I'm facing. So then when people are saying, so let me give you an example. Somebody at a big corporate up in Newcastle had offered some money to my charity. I turned it down. I turned it down because my charity is based in a completely different county. And I just felt that that corporate should probably be giving it to people in their locality because I would be devastated if people in my locality gave their money to somebody else outside of the region. So, again, balance and and fairness. So it's really tough. Uh, And the uh, increase in demand for organisations such as, as ours is through the roof. So we, we plod on, we, you know, we learn how to, and maybe this is as well where the, the tech and the startup mindset comes in. We learn how to pivot. We learn how to go in through the back door, how to be creative in our fundraising. We learn how to manage our runway much more effectively and our hiring process much more effectively. So those skills have definitely come into use in, in, in that way. Uh, we do a good job. We support a lot of people. We make a difference. But it's really, really hard. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Amazing. So you've come, um, you've come through some adversity. Um, you've basically built the life that you want. Well yeah. done. I think everybody would be jealous of that. Where do you see Deb in ten years' time? Um, thankfully, looking the same because the Botox shortage <laughs> was just a really bad thing, apparently on Twitter, and it was it was false. I can tell you it sent shockwaves through me and half of my female friendship group. So I'll probably be looking the same in 10 years' time. Thank goodness for that. I would very much like to... I've started my PhD about three times and not quite finished it. I would very much like to complete my PhD. I think that that... uh, I'm not a supporter of academia. So, for example, it was never a big push for my children that they should go down that route. But for myself, I would feel that that would be the pinnacle of my career if I could get through. I've, you know, I've been really lucky. I've got a couple of degrees, a couple of masters, just a nice PhD on the top, I think. So in 10 years' time, I'd love to be Dr. Deb proper. Um, and, uh, and I also will be clearly retired because I'm just not going to keep on working at that point. Why would I? Uh, and I'll probably um, be finishing my PhD on a beach somewhere, you know, um, uh, whilst doing some charitable calls. So I'm thinking overseas work with a few days off by the beach to finish my writing, uh, looking fabulous. That's where I'd see myself in 10 years time. That sounds cracking. I can't see you being retired, by the way. I'd, I'd, <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd think about three days of that and you'd be, you'd be, you'd be rubbing your shoes on the table. I, I, can see, I can see you keeping busy in different ways. Yeah, probably, yeah. Okay, um, Okay. so the clock uh, continues to tick. Uh, before we wind up, do you have any words of wisdom for our audience? Any Any, any words of advice? For startups or for those working in the kind of businesses that you're at now, so you know, post series A, post series B type businesses? I would say it's going to get really choppy, isn't it? I mean, every single business that I work with has prepared or is 
is finalising their battle plan for the road ahead. And I mean, we hear these whispers, we hear these whispers every year that when the big boys come out and start to say this is happening, like we don't know whether it's going to be worse than the last one, but, you know, it's really not looking good. Then everybody goes into a bit of a panic. And that coupled with what is a, sen a sensitive workforce. We've got people, you know, at the moment, everybody's on heightened sensitivity for a number of different reasons. Mm. And so the, the, the road that they, you know, a, a lot of founders, a lot of startups started with when they were coming back to what was normal, what we believe was normal life, and the journey and all this excitement ahead has suddenly just been covered with bin men who've thrown all of the rubbish over over it and not cleared it and the founders are all stood there going what, what on earth do we do here and then there's all these experts isn't there everybody's telling them what to do don't grow keep on growing don't hire hire your best people have 24 months runway go out and raise don't raise i mean it's just noisy and it's just messy and it's not going to get any better so i would say to um to that community and this isn't just stuff this isn't just like private equity startups this is every small business owner every big business owner for that matter i think now is the time putting plans aside to just not be on your own to reach out to find your tribe somebody running a similar size business to you somebody um in the same venture portfolio for example just find your friend out there find the person outside of your business who's going to be and you to them and them to you just be be those people almost like buddy up so that you can you can verbalize and you can get let off your steam in that way because the journey of a founder anyway or any business owner is really really lonely at the best of times on a good day with money in the bank it's a really really lonely experience um and uh, i saw firsthand the impact of the lockdowns and uh, people losing their businesses and what it did to an awful lot of the startup community firsthand. It was horrific. It's absolutely horrific. Uh, it's so upsetting. Um, and But now we know this is coming. And for me, preparation in that way is the best way. Do, you know, find your buddy, find your tribe. Do not be on your own. Other people can help you get through this. So that would be my that would be my advice with um, with what we're currently facing. That that's absolutely sound. When uh, when when lockdown first hit, we we started doing quite a few webinars, uh, mainly around the CGRS the, um, type activity. But most of the feedback back was wasn't about the technical stuff. It was you know thanks for helping me understand that it's not just me in this situation. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, thanks, thanks for helping me get through, and and, yeah. and that was really helpful. Um, with my with my teams, uh, it's. My teams work with me because I am tough love. I mean, I'm not putting a, I'm not putting an arm around anyone's shoulder. It's not my style. At most, I might throw a box of tissues across the table if they start to cry. But other than that, I'm not really interested. I'm interested in sustainability, profitability, and keeping that business afloat. So I am, you know, I'm not the person people come to if they've got some kind of an emotional level because they just know I'm just like, oh, I just can't deal with that. Um, but. Um, it doesn't have to be as hard as everybody's suggesting it's going to be. You know, just find your people. Uh, um, don't don't be an island. Really, don't be an island. And don't forget to have fun. You can make fun when you've got nothing. But my, we had nothing when we were kids. We just found a tree and went up it and swung off it until you know 
think about it like that. It's all just it's all just part of um, it's all just part of the journey they go on. Everybody just needs to think about it sensibly instead of listening to all the That's cool. I had a football and a dog. There we go. Yeah. Um, Deb, uh, as usual, we could do with three hours of your time. Never mind thirty odd uh, minutes. But it's time to say goodbye. You've been uh, an absolute breath of fresh air. Not quite the whirlwind, but a breath of fresh air. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much. It's been lovely to speak to you. Yeah, lovely thanks to speak much. to you too. That was great.